Hi, this is Louis LaRoche, and you're listening to Behind the Decks. Hi guys, we are back for another helping of Behind the Decks. This is a event music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with DJs and producers from the UK and beyond. We talk all about their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the decks. In this edition of Behind the Decks, I'm checking in with another act I've been a fan of for a very long time. Chris and Ryan are a production duo known as Beta Blocker. Based in Los Angeles, they specialise in making indie electronic and new disco. They started off by making remixes for a host of really big successful artists including Ellie Goulding, RAC and Selena Gomez. Since then, they released their debut EP Monolith in 2018 and have put out a number of singles which have charted on Hype Machine and featured on Tastemaker playlists for Spotify and Apple Music. In this episode, we discuss Chris and Ryan's music journey and how Ryan originally started in a death metal band. For Chris, we talk about the fakery that exists in the music industry and having to deal with that and how young artists have a really hard time understanding the value in what they do outside of monetary success. For Ryan, we talk about the streaming wars and how independent artists can retain independency through alternative avenues of funding. For the duo's mental health journey, Chris talks about living with undiagnosed ADD or ADHD and how that's impacted his education and his adult life. We also talk about the severe anxiety he lived with at the same time as a child, the positives he's found in physical exercise as well as mixed martial arts or MMA and a big back injury he experienced from the gym. For Ryan, we talk about his lived experience of depression, anxiety, people pleasing as well as how he's learned more about his own mental health as an adult and become self-aware of it. So get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go behind the decks with Beta Blocker. Chris, Ryan, welcome to Behind the Decks, lads. To be honest, this is another very surreal moment for me on the podcast as I've been a fan of you guys for about seven years now. So how are you boys? How are you getting on over in America? It is 8.21 here. So how are you getting We're on getting there? On all... This is basically the morning for me even though it's much <laughs> yeah so yeah it's it's we good, wake man. up at the crack of noon uh, you know I, we were actually excited to be on the show we love what you're doing and we're looking very much forward to this oh thank you man i appreciate that we've got so much to talk about guys yep, and same. i wanted to try and get both of your journeys in as equilibrium as i could on the course of this podcast so mm-hmm. without further ado are you ready to start the show yeah man let's go Let's start the pod as we always do on Behind the Decks, lads, by talking about your music journey and how Beta Blocker started. But before we do that, I want to talk about how your love affair with music began. So I always ask my guests about what were some of your favorite records growing up, music idols, inspirations, and how you first got into producing or playing instruments. Chris, do you want to go first? As you said, you were an audiophile at a very early age. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I think the way I started listening to music was really funny. When I discovered music for myself, I would watch these morning cartoons and I stumbled upon my older cousin's NWA records and like Snoop Dogg and like early hip hop. And that's really how I started. So I'd put on his like cassettes and I would watch like Bugs Bunny and stuff in the the morning. (laughs) So I'd be watching the cartoons and listening to these records on his headphones. And I think this like kind of what started my obsession with 
finding and discovering music and it was just very you know like in the 90s we would we'd put like cassette tapes and record our favorite songs on the radio and all this stuff and it, it was just kind of this journey of discovery that was a lot different than today where you have playlisting and like it's very curated mm-hmm. you had the radio which i guess is that it's very largely so and even more so but finding obscure things was a lot harder so i never started as a musician even though my appreciation for music was a big part of my life and as far as the audiophile stuff it really came probably by the time i was in like high school i started discovering oh you can you know if you listen on these nice headphones you can hear all these details all these things in the tracks and so i bought an interface for my computer I had a uh, tube uh, headphone amplifier and I invested in some Sennheiser headphones and like I started just acquiring all this audio gear and with that gear actually is how I started making music in the first place. So it's kind of funny. You originally started out in visual arts, Chris, and we're going to talk about your undiagnosed ADD later in the pod, but how did drawing and painting develop your cognitive skills and lead you to music whilst also giving this ADD something to focus Mm. on? Yeah. So drawing and painting, I don't remember a point in my life not doing that. It's so ingrained into me. I think as far as my earliest memories, I remember always having art supplies and my father paints. He's an artist as well. And it was a huge part of me developing my creative mind and i actually don't really separate music and visual arts at all they're the same thing to me even though the process the tools that are used are different but the actual creative process where you're you have a concept in your mind and it you're trying to execute it and you call on these skills that you've acquired in order to wield whatever instrument or whatever thing that it is that you're trying to create with and it's just a matter of for me assembling and using those skills in certain orders to convey what it is that you have in your mind and learning those skills early on enabled me to have focus and enabled me to concentrate this sort of manic energy that you can have when other things don't really grab your attention in that way and you learn to organize your thoughts And all three things tie in together, music and visual arts and my ADD. They're all kind of like part of the same way that your mind works, which for me is why I think there's a stigma associated with ADD and this sort of like divergent type of thinking process. But I think it's inherent to a lot of individuals And I think it becomes only a problem when you don't concentrate it in ways that are useful or beneficial to you, even though our society is not necessarily structured in a way that's conducive to it. I think there are paths for individuals who experience this sort of way of thinking to concentrate that energy in a very appropriate way or a way that is good for you as as an individual that benefits your life and your experiences that is um i don't know what the word i'm looking for but is something that can really calm your mind in a way when you focus it in the right directions because i think unchecked add is something that's like it can be very scattered and you can feel like you do a lot of 
everything but nothing at the same time. Before we move on to you, Ryan, you said to me off air, Chris, that music production spoke to me. So can you explain what you meant by that? What was it saying that drew you in? I think music production spoke to me in that there was this aspect of, I think maybe early on, I learned that the more I learned about how things work, it seemed to capture my attention. And I was obsessed with music. But finding out that, oh, this is the process with which it's made. And, you know, this is a drum machine. And this is, you know, like exploring the instruments, exploring the sounds. It felt like I was learning to draw and paint all over again. Because at some point you hit certain... I don't know, I guess it, it felt very novel and new. And it, it was like I was exploring this creative side of my mind that I wasn't able to experience in that way anymore, especially as I was getting older, you develop certain patterns in which you explore, let's say, one discipline of, let's say, visual art, for example, you develop technical process, you can explore creative ideas and stuff like that. But it was like a way to do that in an entirely new medium. It felt like I activated a part of my mind that was just dormant. And when it happened, when I started learning to write songs and composing and putting all the elements together, it felt incredibly rewarding. It's actually really hard to describe why it is, but there's something that kind of like calls you to it. It's like an addiction. Once you write a synth or you create a beat or a bass line, and when it sounds good, it's like a dopamine rush. You feel like this mm. sort of, it's like a visceral body response. It's like a high that you get when you write something that you get excited about. And you're like, oh, this sounds great. And then it creates this emotive response in your body. And you, it connects like memories and emotions and all these things. It's really odd. It's difficult to describe. But I think it's the same thing as when you experience music that really kind of moves you. Except you're actively participating in creating it. So you find what you resonate mm. with. And I think that's what a lot of artists that generally, that when people like an artist, I think the music that they're writing is something that resonates with them too. And they're just on that same kind of wavelength. And they see what that person's putting into their music and they say, oh, I resonate with this. Ryan, same question to you. How did your journey start? So mine was a little bit different, but we kind of ended up in similar places. Like how Chris mentioned, he was an audiophile. My dad was like an audiophile. So I grew up with him having like really expensive Snell acoustic speakers. He like bi-amplified stuff. Him and his buddies would have like tape measures, finding like the, the sweet spot in the room to sit and listen to music at. So I kind of grew up with him nerding out on like fidelity side of things and really enjoying music. Same with my mom and she's got a big family and everybody was just you know, her brothers had like encyclopedic knowledge of musicians and albums and like eras of music. So I was kind of like, yeah, like me. none of them played music. <laughs> they were all just kind none of, like of the ability, nerds. but all of the nerdiness. <laughs> um, and I thought it was really cool because it seemed to like bring everybody together. And it was like one thing, like, I feel like my parents were cynical about like consumerism and advertise. Like there was like a lot of cynicism around a lot of things, but it seemed like with music, there was just like, there wasn't really anything negative associated with it. You know, I also really enjoyed listening to music and I was like a very curious kid and pretty obsessive. I really wanted an instrument and I got a guitar, I think when I was in fifth grade, 
I think that's like around yeah. 10 or 11 years about old. That, or, about that, about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> US people. I don't, I don't know how the grade systems work elsewhere. <laughs> but I remember the first time like I picked it up, I don't know what my expectation was, but I thought it was going to sound good. <laughs> and I was like surprised how shitty it sounded when I was just like strumming the guitar. I was like, what, dude? And I was like, how does this not sound amazing? But that kind of set me on a journey to kind of like figure out how do you make this thing sound good? And it was a really good place to put my time and energy. I felt like I always kind of had a problem expressing myself verbally to people. And just being able to sit down and get ideas out at a young age felt really good. I started meeting other musicians at my school. We would start playing music together. And it became like complete obsession. I was doing band practices like every week, writing music constantly, trying to record it. The recording technology that I wow. had was primitive at the time. It was just like a tape recorder, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but we listen back to the tape and be like, oh, this is cool. But I always kind of noticed that of the group of people I was playing music with, I seemed like I was into it maybe a little bit more than everybody else. And when I got into high school, I started meeting other people, at, you know, in where I'm from, Orange County, California, there was like a thriving hardcore and metal music scene. And I met people in that scene and man, they were into it as much as I was. So I, I felt like I had found my people. Yeah, it was really cool. It felt like a good community. And it felt really cool mm. to create things, then go play live shows, travel, meeting. It was like How all these really positive things. Are we talking Skylit Drive? Are we and, talking uh, Bring Me the Horizon? Um, pretty hardcore, man. Oh, wow. Uh, suicide Silence. Like Suicide Jesus, Silence was a hardcore. contemporary of ours. Like we, Yeah, we grew up in the same area. Yeah, we grew up in the same area. So we were playing a lot of shows with Lamb of like God. Like of Plague, Stick to Your Guns, <laughs> um, Impending Doom. <laughs> um <laughs> saw them at Ozfest once <laughs> never played with them but yeah it was it was it was really cool and so like that was like my gateway in and it, it was great it was really fun to socialize with friends and create music but at some point because the process at that time was you know I would write parts we would kind of rehearse them as a band then we'd go to a studio and record and I remember hearing like the first like real studio album we did. I was like, man, this sounds so good. I couldn't believe like that's how we sounded. And it gave like a really cool perspective on the writing process and what it can turn into. And at some point, I kind of realized that if I could start recording at home or if I could start flushing these ideas out and spend more time on them as opposed to going to a really expensive studio, we're on a really tight deadline and we got to get in and out of there. I could spend time kind of tweaking sounds and rewriting that I might end up with some really cool sounds or I might get something closer to what I, I fully envision. So I got like a basic pro tool set up and started messing around with just recording at home. So that, that kind of got me in the direction more of like music production. And around that time I met Chris and he was already kind of like in that world. I met Chris at a really interesting time when I was kind of getting out of the live music touring scene and kind of like starting to dive more into like the studio production side of things and he turned me on like ableton live mm. and just, just never looked back so yeah it was an interesting journey but it really started with live music and and always collaborating with people i think that was a big part of the appeal of it i would have an idea or somebody would bring an idea to the table and then after the input of a few people or a single person you could end up with something that was even greater than what you had before and it was really cool it was a really fun it's always really fun to collaborate and end up with something you know, that everybody contributed to and yeah. everybody did their part to make it a little bit better. That was always re a really fun process. Ryan yeah. was actively playing and I would just go to shows, but all of our friends, a lot of our friends, I should say, were like hardcore kids. And my first music mm -hmm. collaborations were with other hardcore kids, but writing yeah. non-hardcore music. 
So it is kind of odd that we both came from that same place. Yeah, there's a cool culture around it. You know, there's very like a DIY mentality. There's a good community aspect to it. Hard work, creativity. And yeah, there's a really nice culture around it. Yeah, that I think let's kind move of on to what Chris beta blocker now. So you've value. explained how you two met, but what is the inspiration behind the name? Because a beta blocker I googled is a pill you have to take to manage abnormal heart rhythms and stop heart attacks. So what was the reason behind beta blocker and putting a three where the E is? That sounds very um, hip. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the name, um, a lot of people don't know this, but beta blockers are also used as kind of a secret performance drug in the entertainment industry. Oh, it blocks right. your fight or flight response. And essentially, you lose your nerves, basically, when you're on stage. You don't right. have the nerves that you normally get. And that's an aspect of it. But they are used for heart stuff, but they are kind of like uh, anxiety medication, even though they're not, yeah, they're not used well. in yeah, that yeah. way. But <laughs> I think that's what was kind of interesting about it is that it had this kind of offshoot, like secret use that people don't know about and for us music was like our escape from anxiety so music was our beta blocker mm -hmm. that's what it was and when we started out there was three of us so that was kind of the reason for the number three oh, also I see. it was a okay. way that if people are searching for us they don't just get like medication on, on <laughs> pharmaceutical right. pharmaceutical websites so <laughs> pharmaceutical um, advertising it kind of, so it wasn't like the rap you know the rapper um black but he's got a six yes. where the b is it wasn't like yeah, that was yeah, it yeah. <laughs> yeah basically you know it was the it was the thing it was the thing during the time and how would you describe your sound to the listeners who haven't heard you before that's always a toughie i think we're that is there is a aspect of synth pop that we have, but we kind of go in and out of funk and some kind of like rock elements, but more so like, you know, mm -hmm. Tears for Fears and, you know, like that kind of, uh, I don't know what the, there is a retro element that is weaved in and out, but with modern sounds and very groove oriented, I would say. Like electro indie. Yeah, that's not a bad yeah. description. I like that. It's probably sound twitty to people who are listening, like Fred yeah. fucking hell. Yeah, it sits nicely in there. Stupid genre name. It's <laughs> hard. I, yeah, we kind of came from like, we were really yeah. into new disco at some point. We used to do a lot of remixes and there was more of that style in there. And we still really like really cool bass lines and things like that. But there is a taste of retro flair in there. Ryan, uh, you said one I, of the great things about nicely. Chris is that he's able to step back from a piece of work or project and not be wedded to it. Now, some musicians are a bit more precious about this and precious about the original <laughs> piece of work that they create. Does that allow you to both create better music oh, when yeah. there's no friction about that creative process? I think so. So I've worked with a ton of people over the years, and that was something that was always really hard when you'd want to change something. And I understand where the reaction comes from when you're tied to the original idea or you have an emotional investment and it's tweaked. You feel like something's wrong. You feel like something was taken from you or you feel insulted. And I had to deal with that a lot over the years working and writing with people. And at the end of the day, I always wanted just like what is best for the song. And obviously that's subjective. But as the artist or musician, it's up to you to use your subjectivity and your like taste to kind of shape the overall sound. So even though it is subjective, what sounds good, you know, what sounds good to you. And it was always hard to kind of shape that people but working with Chris. He was even maybe more gung ho than I was. It's like, hey, let's try changing this and let's experiment. And then 
you know, sometimes we'd find our way back to the original idea, but you know, there is an element of experimentation that's nice and it mm. kind of feels like anything's on the table, which is cool. I might come to him like, dude, this part sounds really weird. It's kind of a wild card idea, but check this out. And so it, it, it leaves a, an environment of like openness and an environment where I feel like we can mm. always experiment. Yeah, I think it's all very confined, which is yeah, nice. That sounds, that's a good strategy to have, I think. I'm always very keen on Behind the Decks, lads, to expose the myths and show the realities of being a producer or DJ in any of the scenes that my guests come from. And that the superstar DJ life in inverted commas is only really applicable to a tiny minority of producers. So what are some of the realities that you've experienced, positive or negative, that you can share with the listeners, whether that's about work-life balance, whether it's about relationships, mental health, or something else entirely? Ryan, Ryan, you can start this one. That's a good question. So I think in writing tracks, maybe people do know this, but maybe they don't. But I think the amount of ideas that you kind of cycle through and how long it can take to make something good, maybe people don't fully understand. Sometimes it can come pretty quickly, but it's, it's a lot of like work and effort and time putting into kind of chipping away at stuff. And yeah, maybe not fully appreciated. I think maybe something else, I think people might understand this, but we've done some production work for other people, bigger artists and things like that. And it was weird, the behind the scenes of all the different moving parts of all the different songwriters and artists and singers and people coming together to make this product to really prop up somebody <laughs> else. I can imagine. Kind of disturbed Chris and I a little bit. <laughs> kind of was a little bit disturbing. And then I think, yeah, so Ryan, those are those are a couple things. The sort of like, you know, the time invested into some of these things. It's not as immediate as people think sometimes. Like there's an aspect of studio life where <laughs> you're sitting and you're listening to like a four second loop for probably like 35, yeah. 40 minutes. And I think people don't understand that it's like maddening <laughs> to the average person. I've had people sit with me in a session like- In the morning, they pop their head and dude, this sounds awesome. By the end of the day, they're like, dude, you've been listening yeah, to the same There's something sick. Like you like have to be sick eight in Eight hours, what's wrong with you? Another thing that's kind of funny about it, and I think you touched on this, Freddie, because I'm sure quite a few of your guests have dealt with this, but I think being- any type of artist in general, whether you're a painter or sculptor or musician or a dancer, I don't know what you do, but there is a level of selfishness that is required to create these things. Mm. You legitimately have to believe that what you're doing is worth sharing with other human beings, which is in and of itself like this sort of narcissistic it's like positive narcissism yeah, yes. in a way, isn't it yeah in, in, in i truly sense. think it is yeah. it has to be kept in check because <laughs> you have to balance your level of self-importance with also reality and <laughs> and so that's why there's so much narcissism oh, in the industry because it goes out of check very quickly it, it runs wild it runs wild and yeah. it's so weird dude and sometimes when you like run up against that it can yeah. kind of help put you in check like oh i can become shit. this, this like a, holding in like up a two seconds like, I don't yeah. want to come across. And that's, that. it's actually kind um, of a scary notion yeah, sometimes, yeah. but yeah. it is something that you have to recognize because that level of selfishness is something that requires time. There's a massive time investment. Yep. Every musician that I know who is still at it right now, professional or not, forget that, but professional or not, their relationships with their significant others are heavily hinged upon that person's ability to 
understand the value of that time investment to that person's mental health and well-being. They understand that it's integral to their personality and who they are. And if you were to take it away, it might significantly alter who they are. And that person also denying themselves of that for another person can lead to some extremely dysfunctional mental health cycles and behaviors. 100%. When it comes to performing and producing, boys, if you had to say which one out of producing, DJing, singing, or playing instruments helps you most with your mental health? Ooh, okay. From a purely like, well, I guess it depends on what we're looking for, but mental health holistically, sitting down and playing an instrument, just sitting down and playing guitar can be really nice stress reliever. But I feel like if I'm looking at overall existential dread, producing a really cool track helps me out a little bit more than just jamming out the guitar a little bit. I really like production. Performing is nice. Production is almost like painting with sounds. You can move things around. You come back to your canvas every day. You look at what you did the day before, and there's something very therapeutic about that. I'm a studio boy through and through. I really like the exploration of music in the studio. And man, there's so many tools at our disposal now that are so cool. There's like an infinite possibilities. Well, it activates your whole mind. When you're writing music, I saw a really interesting study where they had a brain scan. They were seeing what parts of your brain are activated when you are writing music specifically. And the whole brain is like fireworks. Everything is just shooting off. And there's some type of neurological response that happens. It's both abstract, like reasoning, not reasoning, but like abstract concepts that you're trying to tie into physical reality through technical process, basically. So there is the playing part of it, which activates a certain part of your mind. So whatever instrument you're recording or putting that in. And then you have the mixing and then the sonic changes that you're trying to make and shaping. Your whole mind is just fully active and engaged. There's nothing quite like it. I suspect, you know, that also when you're playing live, there is yeah. this kind of like feedback with the crowd and you. And that process is very rewarding as well. But there's something about the studio because you can just go completely inward and just dive in and get lost in that world. I don't know. There's something kind of special about that. People might not think, I know there, sometimes it's actually, yeah. I will say that once a artist or a song has reached this sort of mythic level of <laughs> mythical level of fame, people then they start to look at it with this kind of sort of nostalgia, like this concept of, oh, they captured a moment in the studio and people look at it differently. But I suspect that process happens like even with like a 10 year old learning the way the, the mind is activated and what's happening. I think it's like equally special. There's something that unique. I suggest that anybody try to write a song and just see what it does for you. See, see if there's anything that's triggered and activated in your mind. It's, it's really a unique and kind of special experience. I think you spoke about performing live and I always ask my guests about mistakes or failure on the podcast boys when it comes to performing live and most importantly it's not a gotcha question what we can learn from it so is there a particular performance or set that you can remember which sticks out that you feel comfortable sharing and, and what did you learn from it as well ryan has the most live experience so i, I want him to to speak on this 
Yeah, so performing live is interesting. So it really depends on the context. So are you performing with a band? You know, are you doing a DJ set? So are you having to play off of other people? In the context of live performance with other musicians, especially since I started young and I felt like there was a lot of ego involved in showmanship, something that I had to learn was not necessarily trying to steal the spotlight, but when you worry about playing cohesively together, most importantly, you end up with a much, much, much better live set and the audience ends up enjoying it more. And that may seem obvious, but you know, when you're a teenager, early 20s, you think like, oh, it's all about me on, on stage and it, it's not a good route to take. So that's something to think about in regards to performance with other people is getting in this groove where it's all about the group process and playing off of each other and not necessarily trying to make every moment yeah about what you're doing it's it's kind of hard to explain oh let's move on Um, to industry issues so for you chris you wanted to talk about young artists and particularly the well-being of younger artists so you said to me that younger artists have a hard time understanding the value in what Mm -hmm. they do and how to be successful outside of the metric of money or being financially rich or financially successful do you think that's because no one really gets a handbook in this industry i think The lack of handbook is by nature because the whole point is that you want to get young talent signed essentially before they understand the value of their work. You're buying their work for cheap and you're reaping the benefits of that work when they blow up and you take the lion's share of whatever that they are able to produce. And it's a very extractive process. I think kids don't know that it's like that until they get in it and they sign their first terrible record deal. And then they realize that this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is not what I signed up for. And it's sad. It's sad because I think social media has created a sort of sickness around the culture of fame. Oh, 100%. And young kids think that their goal to be an influencer or famous on xyz platform there it's con it's always going to change there's always going to be new things but that goal in and of itself they think that that's enough and they don't understand that fame in and of itself is quite toxic experience when the fame isn't earned by process of some work that you've created that is deserving of that and I think even fame itself is a dangerous thing to juggle, even if you were... It's addictive. Isn't yeah, it? it's quite yeah. addictive. Yeah. And I think that that's a terrible framework for young people to operate within. I think they should be trying to operate within yeah. a framework of what do I want to contribute and give to this world? And if that's a value and fame is a byproduct of that, then I will deal with that byproduct in a way, but th- I'm not. That's not something I should be seeking. Yeah, it creates this sort of clout cognitive dissonance now, isn't it? So, you know, someone might have two million TikTok followers or might have five hundred thousand Instagram followers, but what's coming into their bank account isn't what their social media is. But they have the clout or public profile of someone who should be earning that amount of money, but because they don't get, they're not getting it, then it creates this weird cycle where 
they want to be earning more, but they're not. And then they're getting all the negatives and downsides that comes with being that well-known, but not the money to, <laughs> to, to offset it. <laughs> to be able to live their life the way that they maybe intend to. Yeah. Yeah, I... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. There is um, paid in so- social currency. It, see, there is a value in social currency from the perspective of business and marketing and all of these things. Mm. If you're trying to get mm-hmm. into that world, that's fine, you know. But I think you have to understand that it's kind of like cultural brainwashing, you know. I don't want to be mm. cliche about it, but it really is. Is that you're trying to get as many people addicted to what you put online as possible and that addiction sells other products i mean that's really fundamentally the purpose of social media facebook and instagram i mean the, both of those companies are in the business of marketing google is a marketing company they sell data google on youtube i mean yeah so and i don't get me wrong i actually love youtube there's incredible information on there. You know, in terms of a learning tool, it's legitimately one of the best learning tools that's out there for nearly anything. There's a Mm. vast wealth of information that's available if you use it that way. That is the silver lining of all of the negative aspects of social media. It's a tool, yeah. You can use it positively and negatively, but a lot of the downsides are, are coming more to the they, forefront. Aren't they they are the ability to spread misinformation, and you know it's just incredibly dangerous if society doesn't have the framework to use it in a positive manner. I think that's what it comes down mm. to, and it comes down to that we start with people when they're young, kids. That's when they need to learn how to interface with this new world and the fact of the matter is that adults don't even know how to interface with it it's an unrealistic expectation and i think really education is the thing that fights this Mm. and go ahead ron sorry i was gonna say i think we had like a unique opportunity probably people in our cohort of age group like it didn't all get dumped on us at once we kind of got every few years a little bit more integrated so I feel like, you know, when I see people getting scammed and different things, I'm like, oh, I saw things like this coming up slowly. And I kind of knew how to navigate the Internet because I was like slowly introduced to it. And I think a lot of people our age, your age, you know, they kind of got like a little bit at a time. It can be a tool that's Mm. used. Honestly, technology was incredibly useful in terms of my artistic journey. Same, same. It was almost like... Essential. I mean, we were able to work on studios in our houses and spend as much time as we wanted crafting what we wanted to do. And to me, <laughs> I don't care what you write on. I don't care if you write on an iPhone because the, the fact is there's music production software on a phone. And if you create something compelling mm-hmm. on there, I don't care how you made it. It's the mind behind that exactly. tool is what makes the art itself. And yeah. so I think... You know, people will complain. They'll say, oh, well, everybody's doing, everybody's making music now. Everybody's doing this. And to that, I just say, yeah, great. Now everybody has an appreciation. They understand what it takes to take something to its furthest levels. And they can see that, oh, you know, I created this absolute turd. 
using <laughs> GarageBand, you know, and now I understand the level of detail and focus and this investment into your craft. I think that's cool. But beyond that, just the fact that you're getting these tools in younger and younger people's hands. So they're learning these processes earlier on and they're creating the, some of the producers right now that are coming out like incredibly talented kids that are like teenagers. They've had the tools mm. since they were five and they just know how to use everything. And I think this is fantastic. This is, this is huge for music. If you listen to the production quality of albums in like the last 10 years, you'll notice there's a steady increase and what we expect from a highly polished, like final album. You don't have this like lo-fi, completely trash sounding recording anymore. It's a thing of the past. People know better. They expect more. And so the fidelity and the quality of at least the production, I'm not saying the quality of the music itself. And that's another thing that's also funny is people say, well, all music's gone downhill. And do you understand how many billions of songs there are out there? You think there's nobody creating good music now? That's insane. It's literally insane to say something like that. The other issue that you wanted to speak about, Chris, is fakery in the music industry. And it's something we've already kind of touched upon. It's a tale as old as time. You said in your scene, if I'm right in saying that everybody's posturing and it feels a little bit like Las Vegas, that there's an aspect of humanity that's missing. So what's missing? What did you mean by that? I think there is a desire to legitimize oneself, you know, when you're not Ariana Grande or <laughs> who, you know, like this household recognizable, instantly recognizable name. There is a lot of posturing because within specifically the entertainment industry itself, there is a desire to one, you're trying to create connections and you kind of prop yourself up. And this concept of fake it till you make it is rampant, basically. And I understand because sometimes you're presented with opportunity to speak with somebody who could potentially change your life. And so you have to constantly play a character and is sort of like this self-aggrandizing but in a sort of nonchalant kind of way it's very bizarre it's like <laughs> yeah i know a few yeah you like know that. what i'm talking about not even people who do music either yeah <laughs> yeah so i mean it's it exists everywhere but i think it ties directly yeah. back to this obsession with fame and i think it puts uh nasty parts of our character very forward and if you recognize it, it's very unappealing to you. It's like toxic humble bragging, isn't it? Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. Like, humble bragging is toxic anyway, but just like like at the nth degree, yeah. like, oh, like how I'm presuming that the worst degree is when it people start name dropping nonchalantly. That's probably like the yes. worst element, isn't it? Oh, I just hung out with this person. <laughs> it's like, you're what are you doing, man? Yeah, it is weird. Yeah, it's weird. And I feel like when you first get started, it's tempting to do it more. And you meet a lot of people that do it. At some point for me, I just had to kind of like remind myself like why I make music and why it's fun and what I like to do with it. And all that stuff just started to seem more and more. It was very mm -hmm. off-putting yeah. to experience. And I almost felt bad for the person too. Because I, yeah. know, I know why they're doing it. And they probably feel insecure. The whole thing just feels sad after a point in time. And it's like, dude, it's like, yeah, we're, we're supposed to be here like making cool shit. It's supposed to be a lot of fun. In that process, somehow you think that if you're not constantly propping yourself up, that 
all of that's going to fade away. It's, it's almost like it's this inability to separate your ego from the things that you create, which I think is really not beneficial to your mental health as like an individual. For you, Ryan, then, before we go on to discography, the issue that you wanted to talk about was about mm-hmm. finding alternative avenue streams for independent artists. So can you tell me about your perspective on that through a mental health lens? Yes, this is important for a couple of reasons. One of them being, I think if you're involved in art or music, there comes a point as you're getting a little bit older where you start thinking about, am I going to have time to work on what I love to do? Can I monetize it? Can I sell it? Is, is there a way for me to sustain myself with what I like to do? I think when you hit that point, you have decisions to make. And traditionally it was, you know, find a company, record label, management, agent, something like that, that can help bring you into pre-existing world and marketplace that can kind of help you navigate that space. But there's a lot of downsides to that too. I I signed a record contract when I was 18. It was bad. It was bad news. At some point, I started realizing that I was being taken advantage of and it, it was like a rude awakening in a way. So there's that component of it. And it's a little bit unfortunate because then like your creativity and your art gets tied to income and what can you bring in financially with it. If you can, it's, it's, it's good to be able to decouple those things where you can create and not be so concerned about how is this going to benefit me financially? Because I think this weird thing happens when they get entangled and I think it can distort your creative lens a little bit and it can also, it can help or it, it can inhibit like your guiding light and what's inspiring you as an artist. So we live in, a, in an age now where there do seem to be some alternative means. There are ways for independent artists to get their music out there without going through traditional labels. And I hope to see that grow. You know, I know artists are using Patreon. People are building small communities with Discord. You know, you can release your own music via Spotify, even though there's problems with the Spotify paying model and the way that they like distribute funds. Yeah, so it's a weird world to navigate because it's constantly evolving. But I get the sense that with the internet being what it is and the ability to now start uh, cultivating these uh, smaller communities, I think there's opportunity for independent artists to exist and not feel obligated to join and partner up with bigger companies. You know, at times there can be beneficial relationships made with labels or distribution people or different people in the industry, but we have an interesting opportunity at this point in time to figure out new ways to get our music out there and build communities and also create income from that that's maybe feels a little bit more decoupled from the uh, or it can kind of help untangle that mixing of like I have to make income from my art and I'll do whatever it takes to make that happen. Yeah. Young artists, if you want to get started and try to figure out how you, you you're saying to yourself, this is my career path. This is what I want to do. Forget all of the traditional means, because the fact of the matter is record labels right now, they're a dinosaur. And they're going to sign you and they're not going to do anything to promote you until you've done it yourself. And at that point, why not just continue doing it yourself? Do Twitch streams and do, you know, just use this new media. You all grew up with it. You know how to use it. You know how it works and use it. Market your art that you create and don't be afraid to get out there and do that and focus on your craft. And that's really ultimately everything because they're going to do the same thing, but they're going to have you do it and then take majority of your earnings. So if you can be a little self-reliant 
and dive into that process yourself, you will reap the rewards of it in the long term. Let's finish this topic by briefly talking about your discography. So you started off by doing remixes as Beta Blocker. It led to a meeting with UMG and then you were given the opportunity to remix an Ellie Goulding track. And then one of the first standalone songs you did, which was called In My Head, which was a song that made me discover you, funnily enough, ended up going slightly viral on Spotify, um, music blogs, Air Milk and Dancing Astronaut, who were pretty big in the US, posted it. So how did you deal with these endorphin rushes? Because it can be quite addictive for artists' mental health to go viral in that moment or period. That was an interesting time. So we were doing remixes for like major artists and stuff like that. And we were enjoying it. You know, we're kind of like guns for hire. And we had had a few remixes that were then used for larger marketing, like commercials and and things like that. And we felt like the labels and the artists were benefiting more than Chris and I, even though when we did our remix process, we would scrap all of the original music, write everything from scratch. I know a lot of other producers do that, but, you know, we were doing entirely new compositions and things like that. We kind of talked, Chris and I, and we said, hey, why don't we try just putting out our own stuff instead of rewriting all this music for people? And then then those remixes are getting picked up and used for these big campaigns. So that was when we wrote In My Head. And so the fact that it actually did well initially, yeah, there was a big endorphin rush. And I felt like we had made the right decision. I think maybe we did one more remix after that. But we were pretty much, let's focus entirely on original music. And yeah, it was a little surreal when that happened. And not that long before then, mm-hmm. one of our remixes was in a big Cadillac campaign. So that was really weird too. So that time period, there was a, yeah, a lot of endorphins. <laughs> it felt good. I felt like we were on the right path. It was like signs, yeah, we should, we should continue down this path and we should. There is a level of validation music. that you uh, feel from. Yeah, it was, it was a fun you know, time for sure. Uh, you're out, you know, somewhere, <laughs> you're out shopping and then one of your songs comes on or you're watching tv and then it's like you're hearing your music and it's like yeah and you're like you realize that how many people are, are hearing this it's weird and then you look at your spotify numbers and you're like oh my gosh like this is like millions of people are hearing this and it's weird it's a weird thought i remember being in vegas with my friends and like we were out at a bar and like this commercial came on one of the tvs i'm like this is this, it was kind of surreal i don't like that it's big companies that are the reason that artists are getting paid, you know, back when people had to buy records, your money was going to that artist and you'd pay for a tour and you, you know, you'd buy some merch or whatever it is. Mm. And so you see a music video and mm. then there'll be random yeah. product inserted here and there. And it's like pretty blatant. Once you start watching music videos from major artists, just look for all the product placement, shoes, Apple products, headphones, you know, it's, it's just all of this marketing stuff that's inserted in the label gets a basically a payday from these big companies. And then it trickles down to the artists. Obviously, there's some kind of deal that's signed there. And it's just kind of weird. Everything is commodified and it's commercialized in this way that it was there before. I think it really started like 80s and 90s is when it started getting really bad and now it's just Mm. like it's consumed everything it's a very strange space and i truly think that the new media stuff is actually pushing away from that all the live streaming it's just very hey i'm here right now you contribute you're either a patron or you're a subscriber and it's a really interesting model in terms of supporting artists that you like where 
there's a direct engagement between the fans and the artist, which I think is great. And it's sort of, yes, the platforms themselves are kind of run on the same kind of marketing stuff, but it is a very direct way. And I suspect as those things evolve, the way in which we approach monetization and supporting artists that we like is going to change. I like this kind of direct approach. I think it's very interesting in terms of the direction that we go. There's a lot of these kind of free form direct engagement stuff that's happening that's very unique to these times. It used to be that if you liked an artist, let's say you wanted to see Queen live and Freddie Mercury is like a rock god and he's on stage and it's just like, it was this kind of very detached thing. They were icons more than a human being that <laughs> anybody knew. Mm. And yes, there is something that's very cool about that in that, yeah, there is something about that that may get lost in that some mystique, of the, the new stuff. Yeah. But at the same time, the alternative of just industry and marketing swallowing every creative venture that's set out into the world, like just the fact that it's immediately trying to be commodified in some way by some company extracting your creativity to sell specifically product. I don't want to live in a world where that's the only way that artists conceive of making a living. I think that mm. a direct engagement with people again in some way, and this is a way to do that. And I hope that other ways will evolve and that maybe we start using our technology in very beneficial ways again, but it will be shaped by the people who are venturing into those spaces now and they create a path. What beta blocker track means the most to you from a mental health perspective? Ah, uh, wow, that's so tough. I have one. Do you have one, well, Brian? Yeah, and maybe it's the same, but yeah, it's funny. We, we already talked about In My Head, but at that point in time, there was a lot going on. <laughs> uh, Chris and I had just both gotten out of relationships like a week or two apart from each other. They both like crashed and burned and like obliterated like around the same time, probably because we were spending our lives in a studio, you know, so it's not really... A coincidence to me that they both like erupt at the same time but we came out of that and we kind of came out of the remix game and we locked ourselves in in a studio and we came up with that song and it was cathartic a lot went into that track and then seeing our first original track do well was really nice and it, i feel like it was the beginning of a new chapter there's some other songs unreleased now that i'll feel similarly to once they're out but at this point in time i feel yeah. like that was uh yeah, the beginning I, of a new a new era, a new path for us. I would agree. The same song. And I will actually give a different perspective because, yeah, the relationship thing and all of that, because that was very interesting time. Our worlds just like completely changed for both of us. Within a week of each other, we're <laughs> like, OK, our life is entirely different now. And the thing about it was, yeah, going into the studio and writing was like we focused all of our energy into that. And that song was a wild roller coaster of a process. The process of writing that song, it came together, it the initial concept came together very quickly. It's like, oh, this is something, we like this. And we kept working on it. And I think just our mental state was, I think we we're still dealing with a lot of stuff. So because of all that focus being on the song, like every few days we're like, no, oh, this is, this is shit. You know, we got to change this and then switch this up. Oh no, I don't, I don't think this is good. And we got to do this. And the evolution of all of the stages of that song, it's, it's wild. There's versions of that song that don't even sound like it. We probably <laughs> wrote 
30 songs in the process of writing <laughs> that one song. Yeah, and then it got reverted, but then we'd like then revert to this. Even though we felt very good, it almost seems like that song took all the brunt of the emotional impact of everything that we had probably gone through. And it's just all of our neuroses and all of our focus and every way that the sort of negativity could have manifested, it just journeyed through us into the song and then out and then until it was like refined into its final state. I know it sounds insane when I say it, but there's something about that that's like it feels it was like a manifestation of our mental state through its different incarnations. Let's reflect then on your music journey, lads. You've had this career spanning over seven years as Beats Blocker and longer if we count the death metal band. Throughout all these experiences, what has this journey taught you about yourself? <laughs> Ryan. So for me, I think as I go further and further into this journey, understanding the role of like art and creativity for my mental health becomes more and more and focused and more and more clear because it was something I always did and it was something I always felt compelled to do. But understanding that, yeah, it's like critical for me to feel right to do and knowing that it's good for me is something that I come to understand more and more every day. And if I find there's like a week or something where I haven't really gone and played <laughs> or tried producing or writing, I feel grumpy. <laughs> and yeah, and I'm, I'm really happy I have that. I think I, as I get a little older, I feel grateful that I put the time in to, I put in so, so much time learning about music, appreciating music, learning my instrument, learning production software. And at some point you feel grateful that you made that investment in yourself because a lot of people don't have things that they generally enjoy putting their time into and they're just looking to entertain themselves for a little bit or just pass the time and it feels good to have something that not only do you enjoy putting your time into but then you have this time capsule of that that moment in your life and you have like a piece of music or art that goes with that era so i think the older i get the more appreciative i am that I spent the time to pick up some type of skill set and, and it's Chris, in the art art domain, which is for great. me. Yeah. Music has been one of the most rewarding ways that I can express some type of this kind of caveman need to create, right? It's in all of us. We all like to create things. We all, you know, we have a desire to explore that. And I found that music seems to combine that instinctual need with also this thing that's incredibly challenging and engaging for my mind it very much calms me in a lot of ways and it's kind of this funnel for all my sort of ADD energy into something that I can look at and say oh all this energy went into this and I created this thing that I'm proud to share with the world you know and I think that I'm learning as time progresses that I'm creating it for the sake of the art. I'm not concerned with what the world is going to perceive of it. I just know that it's a true expression that I, I feel is worthy of sharing when I've given everything into it. It's my way of sharing the way I see the world, the way it takes away the veil, the ego and everything. I'm just trying to separate that and create this thing that's in its purest form, just some way of sharing 
this shared experience that we have in the world. And I'm trying to forget all the industry stuff, all of the distractions of the world, forget the fame, forget that, just create uninhibitedly and do something that's true to you and share it. And that process is one of the most rewarding experiences in my life. And if you have the opportunity to incorporate something like that in your life, I recommend it to anybody. It will change the way you engage with the world. It's such a rewarding experience. We've talked all about beta blocker with the number three. Let's go behind the decks and talk about your own journey, lads. So Chris, let's start with you first. I ask all my special guests this question. Tell me about early life, childhood, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Chris we meet here? So early on, I realized two things for me. I had anxiety at a very young age, and I had always trouble focusing in school. I suspect both of those things are interlinked in some way. I think there was some kind of dissonance between the experience that I was having in school where I felt like I'm being forced to sit and engage with something that's frankly not that engaging altogether most of the time. And that feeling of essentially being trapped to a certain degree caused me some kind of existential dread. And it was very difficult for me to tackle because I didn't have the tools when I was younger. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that when my mind wasn't engaged and when I was having difficulty reconciling the conditions of my surroundings, it would send me into a existential spiral at like, I want to say the earliest age for that was either third or fourth grade. I started experiencing panic attacks and I couldn't figure out what it was. I just knew that I didn't want to be where I was at that time. And I did not have the tools to recognize a reason with what was happening. I knew that focusing on something that was engaging for me worked very frequently. And that seemed to be the tool that if I was dealing with any counseling or anything like that, that they would adopt with me. And it seemed to work quite well. You said to me that the reason you weren't diagnosed is because every time you'd be taken to be diagnosed, you realized they were trying to diagnose you and alter your behavior. You ironically called it playing the focus game, which is something that people with ADD do struggle with that apart from hyper-focusing. So did you do that because you didn't want to accept that you had something in inverted commas wrong with you? Or were you just rebelling against someone trying to label you in a position of authority? It wasn't. There's an aspect of me that's very competitive. So the second I know I'm being tested, I know I want to do well. And oddly enough, this same thing rang true for my experience, even in educational facilities in school, I would do remarkably well on testing and I would do terrible in terms of turning in homework and <laughs> all yeah. of the busy work type stuff were the things that drove me insane because at some point it's like, yes, I understand the concept. Just test me on it and I can prove that I know this and I don't have to spend hours doing it over and over and over again 
to reinforce a concept I already understand. That was one of my big problems with school in the first place. It always was just a slog the whole time. And it felt, I don't know, like disempowering. It felt like the world around you is antagonistic to your state of being, your mind. I said this earlier. So you felt attacked, basically. To a certain degree, yeah. I felt like I was a round peg being forced into a a square, or the other way around, a square peg being forced into a round hole, you know? (laughs) And so there was this aspect of isolation that you get from that. You don't feel like the world around you is meant to understand the way you work. And in fact, it wants you to work the way it works. I think learning that at a young age was kind of disturbing for me. I immediately recognized that, oh, not everybody thinks the same way, which is like very obvious as an adult. But when you're a kid, you think like, oh, everybody's mind works the same way mine does. And we all like different things, but roughly... It's like, I don't know. There's something about that where when you realize that there's something functionally different about you from other kids that changes the way that you are able to interface with your peers, the world around you, whatever, things that are easy for other kids where they can like just sit down and write their report or whatever they're doing. And and you watch them and your mind is going a million miles an hour going crazy. And it feels like, you just drank 10 cups of coffee and somebody put a straight jacket on you. That feeling mm. is the worst. It is the worst feeling. <laughs> and then coupled with the anxiety, when you start to spiral, it's like you have nowhere to go. And then you focus all that terrible energies, focus inward. And then you start to kind of like question existence and all these it's very bizarre process, very bizarre experience for a child that young to start to question all of those things. So when it comes to focusing, mm-hmm. Chris, hyper-focusing is something that children and anyone with ADD is able to do. So and that's what, what basically means is that if it's something that they really enjoy, they can actually focus more or better than people without it. It's a kind of like a superpower in mm-hmm. some senses. So what did you do or what did you use to hyper-focus when it comes to growing up and the education that you were in? So I noticed that generally... Arts and sciences were the things that would enable me to hyper-focus. So I had an obsession with essentially the workings of the world around me. And then arts were kind of like an observational thing at first. I would see the world around me and I'd try to capture it as best as I could. It was almost like a technical process. And I could be very obsessive with that. I think that learning different mediums and you know like i would draw with pencil and paint and whatever tools were available to me it was like scissors and paper like whatever it was if it was some creative task i could just immediately dive in and and lose track of all time and space around me and that process it learned me to be more exploratory with just the way that i approach learning in general so that hyper-focus immediately sort of, I, I kind of figured out that, oh, the more I try to learn about how something works and understand it on some cognitive level and then break it down and apply it to things that I like doing, 
the better I can execute the things that I enjoy doing. And then in turn, I spend more time doing them. And so it was like this outlet for that hyper-focused energy. And it would enable me to not be bored, essentially. And I think that that way of perceiving things made me just in general, very technical person. I got very obsessed with the technical aspects of things and it made me more refined with my approaches to any sort of creative thing that I would do because I understood the technical mm. stuff very well. So I never shied away from technical things and in turns that aided my creativity like very much so how do you think we support children then who have add or adhd in schools who struggle with the mainstream education and the ways that mainstream education makes you think or makes you have to learn and give them the skills to be able to grow and explore what would have helped you i think we need to reconcile the numbers here i think there is a huge percentage of individuals who struggle with focus in our traditional school systems. I think that the way our educational system is set up, it basically works for half of the population and the other half does not thrive in that space. And I think addressing that is the first step to making sort of systemic changes. I think that there needs to be an option for if you learn in this method, we're going to put you through these, these means of education. And if you learn through this method, this will be your means that you're educated within. I don't think that we should have two different schools per se, but I think maybe the way we approach education is more on the basis of Yes, there are basic things that you need to learn, basic mathematics, you know, basic literacy and writing and history and all of these things, but maybe they can be engaged in a more holistic way. I don't mean holistic in terms of like magical or anything. <laughs> I mean, holistic in terms <laughs> of like looking at it from a, the sort of bird's eye view and saying, this is the educational experience that we want kids to have. And maybe it's more of an exploratory process where they can sort of select their focus and what they can choose to learn. We have means to do these things. We have all kinds of technology that could enable learning at different rates, even in the same classrooms. I think these things are very easily achievable if we just address the fact that maybe we shouldn't be forcing kids into a particular expectation, societal expectation of what we want them to be. I think the way our education system works right now was meant essentially for factory workers in the early industrial age. For example, the bell that rings when you go to class, like the same thing, like in factories, they have the bells between breaks and shifts and all these things. And it's very regimented and structured. And if your mind doesn't work that way, you are not going to benefit from that experience very much. And in fact, you are inhibiting the growth of those individuals into the fields that they will eventually end up in anyways. So why not target their learning experience towards the things that they are going to excel at? And so I think there is a path. I don't know the exact path, but I know that there are approaches that we just need to say, hey, this isn't working. Let's invest some time and money and energy 
into better educating the youth coming into this world. The final part of your journey before we move on to you, Ryan, you wanted to talk about, Chris, is a big back injury that you had from the gym. So how did that affect your physical health and how did it affect your mental health in the recovery process? So that was an interesting experience. I got that back injury in a Muay Thai, not actually it was an MMA, it was an MMA sparring session and I loved MMA during the time. It was just such a physical release and it was such an incredible workout. I was working out six hours a day doing training. That's a lot. That doesn't include <laughs> lifting in the morning. I was always into the very physical things from when I was young, just generally moving around and like expending <laughs> some of the excess energy that I had. Wasn't Peep Khabib yet then? No, Khabib we weren't at Peep. It wasn't just like time. one guy dominating everything. <laughs> Semi-location, were you? Semi-location. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a local gym that was close to me and we had professional, like literally pro, like the top middleweight champions and like heavyweight champions coming in and out of that gym. And CSW, Eric Paulson, I'm going to shout out. It was an incredible experience. Very incredibly supportive. Like it's so you think of like it being violence, but some of the people involved are just some of the nicest people you've ever met and just helping train and guide young people, you know, and ways to kind of concentrate their energy and maybe take some of that physical caveman aspect of us and let it out in a sort of healthy environment where <laughs> it's safe to do so. It was a cool experience, but sorry to answer your question. <laughs> yeah, it was terrible because I could no longer train at the gym. I had dislocated all of my ribs on the right hand side and then they impacted my spine. So it put actually scar tissue in my spine. So I couldn't lift. I couldn't train. I was bedridden for basically a month and it took away this kind of like major thing in my life. And it's very depressing. Like if you're, if you're a very physical person, then being unable to let out that energy. It's oh, horrible, man. It's so bad, especially like, you know, you talk mm. to anybody who's a gym rat and they'll tell you like, I have to go to the gym. I got to go today. You know, they will literally neglect every other factor in their life just so they can go to the gym. That's kind of me now in a way. Because you, <laughs> it's in a new obsession and then you're developing your physical health as a support structure for your mental health. They're so tied in together. It's so integral, both. And people don't understand that until you've had both. And to have one mm. taken away for even a short period of time is maddening. And I remember the recovery process was brutal because every time I felt like, I think I'm good. I think I'm good now. I start training. I go back, I ease in, and then one day I just push too hard and then it's back to square one. It just oh, felt horrible. like I could yeah. feel it. Like the, the pain that I felt day one was right back. It was so bad when it first happened that I couldn't breathe properly. I couldn't take deep breaths because a deep breath hurt too much. And I think learning to accept the reality that, hey, I'm hurt I can't do the things that I was doing before and I need to ease my way slowly and give my body the tools it needs to recover properly and not rushing into it was kind of like 
a life lesson in and of itself outside of just training or anything like that. But it was just kind of like, hey, take your time to heal in the way that you need to heal. So that way, when you have healed, you've healed properly and that you can now approach your experiences from a healthy perspective again. And I think that mm. lesson was an important thing for me to learn during that time. It, I mean, it took a lot from it. It was a very challenging experience. Ryan, let's turn to you now. Same question as Chris to start. Early life, teenagers, and who's the Ryan we meet here? Early life had a lot of energy. And I think similar to Chris, school was a weird experience for me in the classroom. But the social aspects of it, I loved making friends. And honestly, that made the routine of going to school not so bad. Because I always was making friends. I had big groups of friends. And that made the process of early life and education like bearable. But yeah, there was always like this uneasiness and anxiousness just below the surface for me. And so I found myself kind of gravitating more towards, I kind of fit in with everybody, but I kind of found myself gravitating more towards uh, like outcasts, people who I found like really funny. I felt more at ease with them and I, it kind of helped subside that, that anxiousness. So I, I was dealing with a lot of like anxiety and I, I even was struggling with depression a lot in high school. And really I felt like I could escape that playing and rehearsing. So that that's when rehearsing with my band and playing shows like really kind of started to consume all of my time. I felt like it was the one area where I didn't really have to be performative at all. It just, it just felt natural to, to, to do what I was doing. So it was kind of a journey to, to get through school, but the, the social aspects of school and, and early life made things a little bit more bearable and having mm. music as a, as an outlet was like crucial. And, and yeah, so that played a big, big role in kind of shaping who I am now you know, friends and socializing is still a really big part of my life and working on music is still a really big part of my life. You accessed therapy uh, at a pretty up. young age at this point because your mum encouraged you to try it. So was the therapy helpful? I don't know. <laughs> I think even though it was like, it was good at like destigmatizing the idea of therapy and opening me up to the idea of self-reflection I think at the age I got in at, I don't think I could really make sense of my internal world enough to even really know what I was experiencing. I guess it was nice to talk to somebody, but I also had like a, an issue with being like a big people pleaser and being performative that things are good with myself that I think I had all of those processes like presented to my therapist. Like, you know, everything's actually good. And like, I don't think I really ever settled in to being super honest with, with my therapist at that age. I didn't even know I was doing that. But I think looking back on that therapeutic process at that age, I never really got vulnerable with that person. You know, I think it was a good first step. But at that age, it was you really hard for me You said you got better be at managing the depression through different modalities of thinking. What did you mean by that? Well, a couple of things. I noticed if I was feeling depressed or having a depressive episode, it was really easy to focus all of my attention and kind of like internal. And I was getting stuck in like these thought loops. I was ruminating on things. And at that point, I felt like being able to focus my attention outward a little bit helped kind of suck me out of that like more depressive state. You know, whether that's socializing with somebody, being physical, like exercising, creating and when you kind of have that shift of like, I did this thing and I adjusted my focus somewhere and I felt different, 
it kind of teaches you that your internal world is, is affected by so many things, you know, your environment, what you're spending your time doing. That mm-hmm. It felt like it gave me some type of control over my emotional state a little bit. And it was kind of encouraging that like, hey, I'm not destined to always feel this way. And it's important that I do things that can kind of kind of help alleviate this feeling. I felt like it gave me some control over over those emotional states. And mm. it, it was kind of freeing in a way. Mm. Yeah. You said to me off air, for so long, I looked inward in my life. Now I look inward, but not all the time. So how have you done that? That's a good question. I think learning the importance of looking inward is very important. I think that's a very good thing to do. But I also feel like the conversation doesn't typically evolve to then being able to transition back out of that world and being able to, Mm -hmm. I guess, move in between both states of being because there's benefits to being outwardly focused and inwardly focused, depending on what you're doing on a day to day. So I think going inward really helped me understand a lot about myself. And it was easy to get stuck, though, always looking inward and that has its own negative side effects sometimes. So I, I think knowing that it's okay to kind of shift between the two worlds is important to do that. Meditation helps, exercising helps, but how do you travel between the two worlds? It's just something mm. that it's almost like a muscle, I guess. And I put my attention on it and and worked on being able to go between those two states. And it's hard to explain. It's very abstract. There's this aspect of like the inward state is you engaging with your mind and who you are and reconciling that with the world around you. And I think it's good to do that. And I think the outward state is when you actually engage with that world. And I think if you're in the inward state when you're supposed to be engaging with the world, I think you're missing out on experiences because you are looking internally and not just absorbing what's around you. You have to almost disable the internal things so you can absorb new experiences and then you're internalizing them after the fact is when you can go back internal and say, okay, what do these new experiences mean to me? How do I approach looking at this? What does this mean in terms of, and so it can be this very kind of self-involved kind of state. And if you are an anxious person in general or overly analytical, you can break things down too much. And I think getting stuck there can hold you back from experiencing the world around you. Wow, we've gone deep. This feels like a Rogan pod now. <laughs> All we need is Alex yeah, Jones Ale- to come in. Look, they're harvesting babies, Joe. Come They've on. got aliens at Bohemian Grove. They're harvesting babies, Joe. They had a vote in the fucking Senate. <laughs> I met Alex Jones in real oh, life, man. by the way. Oh, my God. He days. was the most unhinged person. <laughs> Yeah, no shit. Was, it's got to be one of the most entertaining experiences watching that guy talk. I watched all of that, by the way. That was four hours. I watched I mean, that like a work. It's unbelievable. Once. I don't know man, if he dude. believes anything that he's saying. I think he does. Now he fully believes everything he's saying. Do you know what's mad? 99% of what he says, it turns out to be just complete, like, whatever. And then 1% is right. And you're he like, gets it right. He was actually right I mean, about yeah, this. because if you spew out every possible permutation <laughs> yeah. of what can happen one of them is going to be right he's the nostradamus <laughs> one day i saw a really funny comment and they said on a long enough timeline alex jones ends up being right at some point how did we get onto this this is me this is me just going completely off topic man this is how i know we've been on a long podcast <laughs> talking about alex jones it all comes right. back to alex jones oh, one way okay. or another dude so ryan before we reflect 
on your journey, you had one more thing you wanted to talk about. And you said to me off air, you felt mm-hmm. an incongruency between myself and the world around me. Mm-hmm. And that feeling made self-medicating appealing. So what point in your mm-hmm. life did you self-medicate? And did that ever become a relationship yeah. that was out of control? Yeah, so teenage years into like mid-ish, late-ish 20s. Yeah, growing up, I always felt like Maybe with my group of friends, I feel like the way we saw the world and the way we responded to the world and the, what we wanted to get out of the world was similar. But versus like the society around me and the culture around me, I felt very different. So you kind of feel like alienated in a way. And you can use drugs and drink and change your internal world to either numb it or you don't think about it. But it's still there, whatever you're feeling. It never really got super out of hand, but I I definitely abused substances for periods of time in my life. And what kind of helped me is realizing that incongruency, feeling different than the world around you, kind of gives you a lens in which to either criticize or give your experience of the world as an artist or as just a human. So it, it gives you an interesting perspective that then you can then kind of pour into other avenues. So I've learned to kind of appreciate that kind of outsider feeling. And I think it gives me it gives me fuel for what I like to make and create. So something that I saw kind of as an uncomfortable detriment has kind of over time, I've realized is something that gives me maybe a u- unique perspective to put into my work. Yeah. And I feel more healthy and I feel more comfortable mm. with. Let's uh, reflect then with, on with your mental feeling. health journey now, boys. Chris, let's go with you first. So given what you've been through. What have these experiences taught you about yourself? And if you could go back and talk to that 13-year-old Chris who was struggling with his ADD or the Chris who was trying to manage his anxiety or the Chris who was recovering from his back injury and couldn't do Muay Thai, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I would say if you can... It's really tough for me to fully reflect on that because I don't know that I have... I, I always wonder that did I have even the tools to understand the advice that I would be giving now. But I think the main thing for me would be that this state is temporary and that if I can focus this anxious energy, this nervousness, whatever I want to call it, these neuroses, if I can concentrate them into creating and just keep my energy there and just engage, engage with the world engage with the reality that's happening outside of my head as much as I possibly can, that that state will pass much more quickly because I will be receiving a sort of positive feedback from the environment and the world around me in the form of the things that I create. And I can feel a sense of accomplishment, a sense of engagement with my peers, with my art, with learning, whatever experience that it is that I just fully engage with it and ignore this kind of desire to break down and concern myself with the existential questions of why and how and all of these things and just be there in that moment doing that thing, the outcomes that result as a process of fully engaging with my world will provide the answers that I'm actually looking for. And to you, Ryan, same question. If you could go back and talk to the Ryan who was struggling with anxiety or the Ryan who was trying to fix 
the incongruency that he felt in his life. What would you say to him knowing what you do now? I think what I would say is to, okay, so I don't know if everybody experiences this, but being younger, I always kind of had an idea what direction I should be going in. And it was a pretty strong feeling, you know, pursuing, I knew what I wanted to pursue, but whether people in my life, parents or other role models or people of influence maybe didn't agree with it, or maybe didn't really see the benefit of going down a certain path. I would tell myself that it's it's good to be honest with yourself about what it is that you want to get out of life. Trust yourself with it and stay true to it if you can, because I don't think that feeling is wrong. And as long as you're willing to you know, kind of put in the hard work and, and get through the hard times. It's I think it's worth pursuing the things that call you the most. Not not to be easily swayed if what it is you're trying to pursue doesn't really line up with Chris what's Ryan, typical in your beats a blocker. Thank you so much, boys, for coming on behind the decks and checking in with me. Thanks, Freddie, man. It's a pleasure. It's been real. Yeah, it's been great. Well, that's it. That's all we've got time for in this episode of Behind the Decks. A massive thank you to Chris and Ryan for dedicating so much of their time to chatting with me. These pods always make me pinch myself just a little bit that I'm actually chatting to artists that I love and have loved for so long. My favourite beta blocker track in my head will play us out. And as always, I'll put some links to where you can follow beta blocker on social media and stream their music in the show notes. I will sign us off by saying, you guys already know, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it. Give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will really help us out with those algorithms. If you want to support the work we're doing at Ventmore and you like what we're doing here, please visit our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. That's all one word. Or you can visit our GoFundMe if you want to make a one-off donation. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Decks. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Staring up these feelings off of my head